in this section, we are talking about the institution of the Kohanim, the the priesthood within and the Levites, the priesthood going on in the service of the tabernacle. We saw in Exodus as they finished up that book, Shemot, they, they finished and they completed the tabernacle. Now we see the elements of the sacrificial system coming into place. Uh, this is, again, a reminder of the vision that Moses had in the heavenlies of the eternal tabernacle of God in the presence of the Lord. And this was a replica to remind them of things. It was a, uh, a type and shadow of what was to come. And we see later on, as we'll look into it, uh, how Messiah fulfills those things that were spoken of there. But what we find here in this chapter is it says uh, that, uh, Mo, uh, that, that the Lord had given Moses an order. He said, give this order to Aaron. You know, we have our leaders today. They're giving orders, governors and others about uh, separating ourselves and uh, uh, isolating ourselves and quarantining ourselves uh, because of all the things going on. Uh, this week is also very special because it is today is Shabbat Hagadol, the great um, Sabbath that comes the week before Passover, the Shabbat before Passover. We go through and we remove all the chumets, all of the leaven, uh, all of that from our home, and we eat matzah instead of bread. Um, but there's also the element of cleaning out the the chumets in our own lives, cleaning out those things that need to be removed, those things that, if left to fester, will build and bring um, consequences that are not good. It's sort of like a virus in a way. Sin is like a virus. It goes through and like leaven, it says it takes just a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. You put a little leaven into some flour and before you know it, it's mushrooming up uh, all the way. Well, matzah is without leaven. And when we look at this portion, uh, it's speaking about some of the elements associated with the Levitical priesthood. As they would do this, they burnt the wood, the fire on the altar uh, for the sacrifice. And it's said in here, and I'm only going to spend just a moment on this, and then we'll look into these other portions. It says, in this way, the fire of the altar will be kept burning and not allowed to go out. Each morning, the coin is to come in to make sure it's going there. And it says in verse 6, fire is to be kept burning on the altar continually. It is not to go out. There's something about consistency that was supposed to be going on with all of this. And what we find is that when they first started to do their service in the tabernacle, they were diligent to fulfill the things that they were supposed to do. It was a, a, a demonstration to the people of what their sins cost, the, the innocent life of an animal, uh, to remind them of the severity of what sin represents the guilt offerings and the, um, where am I here? Uh, the uh, korban olah, the burnt offering, the asham, the guilt offering. These were things that were brought into play to remind them of the fact that they needed to be forgiven of these things. Well, as we look a little bit further, this fire was supposed to be burning continually. And what we find is later on in the Haftorah portion, for today, which is from the book of Malachi, some say Malachi, 
some, I guess, from the uh, Italian division. They may call them the Malachi papers. I don't know. But here we go. It's Malachi in the Hebrew. And there is a very interesting point with this because on Shabbat HaGadol, this passage is read from the book of Malachi, chapter 3. And here we find it starts off by saying, Look, I am sending my messenger to clear the way before you, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yes, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you take such delight. Look, here he comes, says Hashem Sava'ot, the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day when he comes? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a different kind of fire, like the soap maker's lie. He will sit testing and purifying the silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold and silver so that they can bring offerings to Hashem uprightly. Now what we find here is that he's telling them in the book of Malachi that he is that they have abandoned their calling, that they have taken lightly the responsibilities that their calling represents. We are all like a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We all have responsibilities, and we cannot abandon those responsibilities. We have to take them seriously. And when we do, we find that in this case, he is rebuking the sons of Levi. He's rebuking the Levites. He's rebuking the priesthood who are in the temple. He is rebuking them, and he says he will be like a refiner's fire. He will come in and he will purge them. He is not getting rid of them. He is not removing them. He's not purging them out of the system. He is purging out of them, wanting to purge out of them all of the compromises, all of those things that were like refuse that need to be removed, that needed to be coming to the surface as it's heated up by the fire and then skimmed off the top so that the gold and the silver would be pure in what it represents not with compromise, not with leaven. Again, that idea of the chumetz, of the leaven, that leavens and contaminates the whole bunch. Like I said before, it's like a virus. It comes in, and before you know it, it takes over everything. But God has an antidote for that. It's called repentance. It's understanding our need to be forgiven, our need to be set free. Well, when we look at the portion here, he says to them, um, bring, in fact, in this section, one of the passages that we mentioned earlier, uh, it's in this chapter that it says, uh, in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Malachi, it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there will be food in my house and put me to the test, says Hashem Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts. See if I won't open for you the floodgates of heaven and pour out for you a blessing far beyond your needs. And when he says to them right before that, he says, can a man rob God? You have robbed me. But you ask, how have we robbed you? In tithes and voluntary contributions. A curse is on you and on your whole nation because you robbed me. Then he says, bring the whole tithe, the whole tenth into the storehouse. What's happening is that they are so confused by their compromise and it has so permeated it that when he says to them, you've robbed me, he's not talking about the people. He's talking about 
the Levites themselves, that they have abandoned the responsibility that they had. They've taken for granted their position and what it represents. And so he is telling them that they have abandoned it. They've robbed him. And they said, in what way have we robbed you? He says, in tithes and offerings. And he tries to go through. And basically what he's saying through all of this is that he wants to bring restoration for them. He's not looking to cut them off as bad people. He wants them to fulfill their duty with full joy and understanding about what it represents. If you look through the book of Malachi, you find that he is dealing with them continually and they're fighting him all the way through. They're challenging God all the way through. In what way have we done this? How have we done that? Looking for blame, looking for excuse. An excuse, no matter how good it is, is not a valid substitute for what God has called each of us to do. Having someone to blame will not remove the responsibility we have to do what's right. And that's what he was dealing with with the people here. It also says, interestingly, as we approach Passover, it also says at the end of this section, uh, it says in verse 22 or chapter 4, verse 4, depending on the translation, Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I enjoined on him in Horev, laws and rulings for all Israel. Look, I will send to you Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of Hashem. He will turn the hearts of fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with complete destruction. God's desire is to turn the hearts of children to the fathers and fathers to the children, mothers to their daughters and daughters to their mothers. There is a restoration that God wants to bring about. And he talks about the coming of Eliyahu, of Elijah. It's significant because during Passover, we open the door for Eliyahu, for Elijah to come in. What's interesting is that when we open the door for Elijah, it is also as a prelude to introduce who will come after him. He is the forerunner of Messiah who is to come. As it mentioned earlier in this chapter, he is the one who it says uh, will suddenly come to his temple. Um, the one who you seek, the one who is coming, he will suddenly come to his temple. Yes, the messenger of the covenant in whom you will take delight. Look, here he comes. Who will endure his coming? Well, when we look at that passage and we go to the book of Mark, when we see in that gospel a reference that I read earlier about how he came into the temple court, Yeshua came into the temple court and began to drive out those who were carrying out business there, merchants and customers. Sounds almost like the governor kicking people out of stores and saying, don't go in there or don't have weddings, don't have funerals, don't have any of this, no people getting together. But it's a different situation. What he was doing was calling people out because they have abused what their job was. You know, in a way, you look at it and you say, well, they were supposed to have money changers and people who would exchange the animals for the offerings uh, with money and they would come in and be prepared so they couldn't, didn't have to bring it with them all the way from their homes as they came for Passover and to bring their offerings. 
but there was something more. It became a business. It became something that was more than just meeting the needs of the people to provide them with what they needed to be able to fulfill the festival and the sacrificial system. No, it, it was something more. He said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all people, for all nations, for the Goyim, for the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he describes this in very strong terms. Now, some might say this is where Yeshua had a little bit of a psychotic break. Not the case. They didn't say, put this guy in a straitjacket. They didn't say, what's wrong with him? In fact, just a little bit further, as I read earlier in the next verse following, when he says, when evening came, they left the city after they finished this experience in the temple. In the morning, they came by, and on the same day in verse 27, they went back into Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple courts, there came to him the head Kohanim, and the Torah teachers, and the elders. And they said to him, What smicha, by what authority do you have to do these things? See, their question was not, What's wrong with you? Are you crazy? No, no. They looked at it because they understood that Shabbat, when they read from Malachi, that the one whom they seek will suddenly come into his temple and he will purify the sons of Levi. He will come in and he will address their situation, not to point out their hypocrisy and their problems and have them cut off, but to point out their hypocrisy so that they could turn from their diseased way. I say diseased because it was like that leaven. It had infiltrated and contaminated their service to God. And as a result, it expanded to how people outside coming in. Imagine this. You're coming to the temple to bring your sacrifice, and all of this activity is going on. It's a business. There is no sense of repentance. There is no sense of coming to worship God. They're coming in, and they were so consumed with the merchandise sacrifices that they were not coming with a penitent heart, a penitent heart to seek the face of God and repent of their sins and be restored by God's love. Now, when they went in, they said, by what authority are you doing this? And the authority was something that came from God. He was doing this as the representative who was to come, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who was the fulfillment of all of the sacrificial system, all of the substitutionary sacrifices. In one sense, we also talk about the, um, the, uh, the Akedah, the, the binding of Isaac, and uh, in the, uh, when, when Abraham brought his son to the Mount Moriah, to bring and make sacrifice. And he said, where is the sacrifice? He said, God himself will provide a sacrifice. And he did. And we see the substitutionary sacrifice instituted there. Well, we see that just as the son of Abraham was offered up, and interestingly, every day in the traditional prayers, that reference to Isaac is brought up, not just to the idea that he would have been sacrificed, but they actually describe as if he was and was raised from the dead. 
Not that he was or needed to be raised from the dead, but there is reference to that every time this comes up in morning prayer. When they read about this, it reminds us of the son who was sacrificed and was raised again to life. Interesting that we can see so many correlations, and we'll look into this when we talk about Passover in more detail, but the correlation that is there about the son being the sacrifice who also was executed and then raised from the dead. But here we find in this section in the book of Mark, he is describing this. They see the authority. They see what he's doing, and they don't say, are you crazy? They say, by what authority? By what shmicha? What ordination? By what means do you have authority to do this? And of course, his authority came from the Father. His authority came because he was the one who was promised. And this is important because at this season, we need to be delivered from all of those things that so easily beset us. In fact, there's a passage in the book of Romans where it says, I exhort you, therefore, verse chapter 12, verse 1, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. A lot of people are being set apart, but are we set apart from God or set apart for God? If we're set apart for God, all of our activities and all of the benefit will work for good for us and for all those we come in contact with. But he says, I exhort you to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This is, will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. And then he says this in verse 2. In other words, do not let yourself be conformed to the standards of the Alam Hazet, or this world, or the age that we are in, in one way, you could say, he's saying, don't be conformed to the standards that are permeated with chumets, that are permeated with all of our own personal desires, all of those things that have a way of contaminating us from being a vessel, a living sacrifice before God. It says this, it says, not to be conformed to the standards of the olam hazeh, Instead, keep letting yourself be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will know what God wants and will agree that what He wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. You want to succeed, right? We all do. We want to do what's good, what's satisfying, what is of benefit to us and to our families. Well, the beginning of that is to remove the chumets, to remove the leaven, to remove the sin, to remove those things, to come before God with open hearts, not challenging Him when He challenges us, but saying, what must I do? Asking Him to come in, asking Him to cleanse us and to purify us. It says this, he says in verse 3 of Romans 12, For I am telling every single one of you, through the grace that has been given to me, not to have exaggerated ideas about your own importance, there are a lot of people who think they're important. Their self-importance is their main focus. He said, instead, develop a sober estimate of yourself based on the standard 
which God has given to each of you, namely, trust. You know, there was a standard mentioned earlier, the standards of this world. But the standards of this world are not to be equated with the standards of God's purpose for us. Trusting Him is something that comes by experience. It's spending time with somebody, getting to know them. And as we get to know God better, we learn to trust Him more. I mentioned this before in a previous message. But this is so important to understand that Yeshua came to provide for us everything necessary to complete our need in Him. And when we do, and we learn to trust Him, in times like we are in now, when everything is so chaotic and so destructive and so um, wild out there, each person could be tempted to try to do what he thinks is right in his own eyes. But when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, it has a ripple effect and nobody does right. And everything begins to be in turmoil and confusion. And God wants to have us to come as a living sacrifice, to come before Him and to not have exaggerated ideas of our own importance, but to understand how important Messiah is and what He came to provide for us, what He came to do for us. You know, we can talk about whose fault this is and whose problem this is and who to blame and what to do and have all kinds of ideas and opinions as but to what we think should be done. But you know what? We're in this right now. And God is not allowing us to be alone, even if you're isolated in your apartment or in your home by yourself. We're not alone. We have the internet. We have Zoom. We have FaceTime. We have all these things to be able to stay in communication. It also is causing us to recognize the value of what we have here in this world to understand what it is, what are the important things, family, God's Word, our relationship with Him and our relationship with others, being able to be grounded in the things that are of most importance. You know, in another passage in the book of Hebrews, it says this in chapter 12, also chapter 12, verse 1, So then, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses those who showed and learned through the things that they suffered how to trust God. It's that faith chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews, that talked about all of the things that with all of the challenges that they had, God provided an avenue of escape. It also mentions that when uh, it says in chapter 11, verse 23, by trusting the parents of Moshe, hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they weren't afraid of the king's decree to kill all the firstborn males or the males that were being born. It says, verse 24, By trusting Moshe, after he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose being mistreated along with God's people rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the Messiah as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eye fixed on the reward. He understood 
that his maker was God. And so we come after seeing all the different ones. Some were delivered from the lion's den and from all kinds of calamity. Others were martyred because they refused to compromise and began to always trust God. And so he comes to this, seeing that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, verse 1. All those who have gone on to show that as they developed their relationship with God, they experienced a trust that comes out of intimate relationship. And what does it say? Let us too put aside every impediment, that is the sin which easily hampers our forward movement, and keep running with endurance in the contest set before us, looking away to the initiator and completer of our trusting, Yeshua. Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, of our trust. Looking to Yeshua in all of these situations. And what was it about him that stands out? Not just that he died for our sins, not just that he forgave us, not just that he wants to have a relationship with us, to walk in intimacy with him. But look at what it says here. It says, in our challenges, in our calamities, in the things we're enduring and going through, we look to Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, who, in exchange for obtaining the joy set before him, endured the execution on a stake as a criminal, scorning the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Yes, think about him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you won't grow weary or tired and become despondent. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in the contest against sin. We don't want to make excuses for sin. We don't want to accuse people of sin. But when it comes to ourselves... We need to be changed from the inside out. I mentioned that song earlier. We need to be changed from the inside out. People say they want change, but they really need to change the other guy. But listen, nothing good will happen when all we're focusing is on finding a scapegoat, somebody else to take the blame. But when we address ourselves before God and say, God, whatever chumetz there is, whatever leaven there is, whatever sin there is, whatever is missing the mark, please, Lord, come in and transform me. And as I'm transformed, and how are we transformed? It's said by the renewing of our mind that we may know what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Laying aside the impediments, laying aside those things so e- that so easily encompass us. You know, they start slowly, but after a while it builds and it takes over, and before we know it, We have succumbed to those things. And suddenly, after being delivered from slavery, we find ourselves enslaved once again. That's the insidious nature of sin. It doesn't let go. But God provides for us through Messiah an opportunity to be set free. He provides for us to be able to be set apart for God as a living sacrifice because He has brought into us an opportunity to have all of our sins removed by laying himself down on an altar, in this case, the execution stake. It says, no man takes my life. He said, no, Yeshua said, no man takes my life, but I have the power to lay it down and to bring it, to build it, to to, to bring it back. 
And we see that because he died on behalf of us to remove as the final sacrifice our sins, he rose again to justify that reconciliation and to justify our being reconciled to him and to one another in ways that only can happen as we walk in union with Messiah. As we come to know Yeshua in a deep and intimate way, we experience His presence in our lives. This is something that the world doesn't fully understand. They think it's crazy. And in some ways, I would say if we're on this issue of vaccines, in some ways, you know how you make a vaccine? You take a little bit of that disease and they find a way of mixing that and coming up with something that makes you uh, so that you're immune to that disease. It's like a slow buildup of that to where it doesn't infect you, but it builds an immunity towards that. Well, you know, in the world, there has been an immunity built up to Yeshua. They take just a little bit, a little bit of Yeshua, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of celebration, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but do what I want to do. And the fact is, in doing that, we become inoculated to the reality of who Yeshua really is. And you don't want to be vaccinated against Him. You want Him to be the vaccination that brings about transformation. That's why He took the sin upon Himself. Enough so that He could then provide an inoculation against sin for us. He became sin for us. For him who knew no sin, he became sin for us so that we could be set free. He is the remedy and the vaccine against sin and against all of the things that so easily beset us. But we have to constantly be on our guard, constantly moving forward, constantly looking to him who is not only the author and finisher of our faith, but he's everything in between. And when we look to him, we understand that he did not compromise, but he, for the joy set before him. You know, sometimes people talk about it at this time of year. We talk about Passover, and people in the church are celebrating Easter, and they talk about the passion of the Christ. Well, you know, the passion is not just simply the suffering. The suffering was not the focal point, and yet everything seems to be the focal point of his suffering, his suffering, his suffering, all that he did. Nobody suffered like he suffered. You know, people have suffered physically more than what he physically suffered in this world. There are people who suffered a lot of things. In fact, a quarter of a million Jews were sacrificed in the same way. They were offered up on execution stakes. He was not the only one and the other two robbers. Those were not the only three people that were ever executed on a stake. A quarter of a million people, many of them Jews, were sacrificed in that way as well, that brutal execution. But you know, it was more than just what he suffered. When people go through and say, and he suffered this and the metal and the whip and the whole thing, all of that is terrible. But it points out something. It says, who for the joy set before him endured the execution stake. Who for the joy set before him. Do you understand that the passion that he had was for us? The 
heart that he had was for us to reconcile us to himself. It says, who in exchange for obtaining the joy set before him endured the execution stake. He considered it something that was not so bad compared to what it was going to produce. You know, later on we see that uh, Rav Shaul, Paul, the emissary of Messiah, who wrote a number of the letters that we have in the New Covenant, the Pritchad Hashah, he understood this also. He understood that whatever was gained to him, he considered to be like excrement in contrast to knowing the Messiah Yeshua. You see, the key to everything is knowing Him. You may have a great resume. He had the best resume. But when He met Yeshua, and when He experienced His presence, and He learned what it was to walk in union with Him, everything else paled. Everything else paled by comparison. In fact, it's interesting that he did not have an exaggerated idea about his own importance. He learned that in every state he was in, how to be content. Why? Because he knew Yeshua. He trusted him in a way that transformed his life. And he was able then to transform the lives of others. I said before that you can't change everybody else. But you know, if we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, if we are transformed and receive the sacrifice in our life and the substitutionary sacrifice that takes away our sins, we then become vessels of God to be able to demonstrate the fact that the Father has made His home in us. It said, Yeshua said that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, the manifest presence of God, will come and take of His and show it to us. It says that He will come and make His home in us. When He makes His home in us, we know He's there. When He makes His home in us, others can see His residence within us. And when they do, they want what we have. They see the gift that is there. God wants us. If you want to have good, satisfying success, You've got to start by allowing our minds to be renewed, our hearts to be transformed by the Spirit of God. By walking in union with Messiah, we have access to promises that are exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask, think, or imagine by the power of His Spirit working in us. This is something so rich and so wonderful. Rav Shaul constantly spoke of this in all of his writings. All of Yeshua's Tamadim, his disciples, spoke of these very things. They spoke of it as far beyond anything we can ask, think, or imagine. Because what he provides is what we originally were called to be. People who walk in union with him. God wants us to experience that. He wants you to experience that. He wants us to be set free so that we can invite others to experience that as well. And I encourage you to ask Yeshua to come into your life, to ask Him to come in and begin to take residence within you. And if you have any questions about the challenges that are there before you, He will show us how to transform all of those things for us. I mentioned a passage earlier in the book of 
Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, where he said, uh, where he said this. He said, "For I know what plans I have in mind for you," says the Lord. Plans for well-being, not for bad things, not for calamity, so that you can have a hope and a future. When you call to me and pray to me, I will listen to you. When you seek me, you will find me, provided you seek for me with your whole heart. And I will be found by you. I will let you find me. We sometimes think we're looking for him. He's calling out to you wanting to draw you back to himself. He will let you find him. That's what he will do. And then he says, I will reverse your exile. Whatever exile, quarantine, whatever distancing has happened from what our purpose was, like earlier in the portion we read with the Levites, in Malachi, they abandoned their calling in a sense and God was calling them back to purge away the dross, to purge away the impurities so that they can be set free, so that you can be set free. Removed from exile, he says, I have driven you uh, from the places where I have driven you. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have driven you, says Hashem, and bring you back to the place from which I exiled you. God is wanting to make himself known. I just want to pray for you right now. Avinu Malkainu, our Father and our King, we thank you for the promises that we see in your scripture. We see how special this season is where you brought deliverance by a mighty hand. But then we see later on how with all the miracles, wonders and signs that you brought protecting our people from the plagues that were upon Egypt at that time, we saw how quickly our people in the wilderness, when challenges came, abandoned the one who had called them, who had delivered them. Lord, may we never lose sight, never, never lose hope that is set before us to be able to experience the fullness of what you have for us, to not become despondent in any way, but to take hold of what we have been taken hold of by you, to accomplish the purpose that's in your heart to do for us. Lord, we ask, I ask you right now, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, let them ask Yeshua into their life and experience all of the abundance that comes from knowing you. I ask you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen.